Hey everybody, so this episode is with uh, Dacre Stoker, and uh, you'll have to forgive me, there was some technical difficulties at first, but the interview was really awesome, so I hope you enjoy it, and uh, thank you so much for checking this out. Talk to you later. Bye. Test one, two. Why, am I, why is my mic not coming on? Yeah, but I'm not on our program. Program is the uh, on air. Yeah, I'm not on air yet. I don't want to be on air yet. Test one, two. Why can't I hear myself? I think the headphones uh, repeat what's going through a uh, program. So. I know I've done it before though with that on. So I want to be able to hear him. We, I've got to go on now. Okay, uh, Daker, can you hear me? One second, I'm trying to apologize, everybody. I'm trying to get this uh, recording going. So, you there, Daker? I'm gonna switch, switch the aux cords. Okay. Daker, can you hear me? Okay, uh, I can barely hear you, so I'm trying to trying to boost you up here. Everybody tuning in, if you can hear me live right now, I apologize for the technical difficulties, but I'm trying to get everything set up. I uh, this is Adam Messer with Muses Memoirs and More. I haven't been in the studio for about four months, so uh, transitioning back in. So thanks a lot for listening. It's the only thing. Like, um, I've got them in the aux. Okay, Dick, are you in there? Yeah, I've, I'm, I apologize. For some reason, it's not coming through the soundboard. So, um, can you check to see if it's coming on out there? Appreciate everybody. Uh, appreciate everybody listening in today. Uh, Daker, can you give me a check real quick? Yeah, it's not. It's not coming through. Okay, uh, give me just a second, everybody. All right, we're going to try something different. Um, <coughs> I apologize, everybody. Uh, Daker, let me uh, get a mic check. I've got the mic set up with the uh, speakerphone on this since the aux isn't working. Okay. Yeah, it sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? See if it comes on out there, please. Yeah, um, 
I apologize, Daker. We're, we're just trying to get everything set up. Can you uh, just give me another check real quick? I got to go. Yeah, sure. This is Daker Stoker. I am coming to you from Aiken, South Carolina. Okay. All right. So I uh, apologize, everybody. The uh, sounds a little odd uh, because it's coming through my phone and the aux uh, is not working right now, but we're going to bear with it. And uh, today's guest, uh, as I've said his name a couple of times, is uh, Daker Stoker. Um, he is uh, an author. Um, he's been uh, recently here to Savannah, right? Yeah. At the Savannah Book Festival just recently. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was a, a pretty cool thing. I, I had a chance to meet you there. I thought it was really neat. And I've been reading your book, uh, Dracul, that you uh, co-authored with uh, J.D. Barker. So I, uh, I, I'm i enjoying it. I'm really having a good time with it. Are you losing sleep over it? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but I, I tell you what, the... Um, it's it's I'm at I'm about a hundred pages in and it's really starting to build up, you know the uh, I guess the suspense. <laughs> um, Ellen is uh, perking my interest a lot, you know. Kind of I'm at the scene now where um, Bram is a little boy and he's been sick for a while and um, all of a sudden she does something that kind of cures him uh, magically. So. <laughs> Or so we think. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the cool things about this book is that this has been probably 15 years of, of my life to to do a lot of research to find out as much as I possibly can about my famous great-granduncle Bram Stoker. Um, you know, everybody knows about Dracula, and, and I knew about Dracula growing up, but I, I really didn't know about my relative, and I just felt that it was it was time to uh, you know dig into the past and and one of the interesting things I found, I guess because my, my instinct as a, a former school teacher and an athletics coach was, you know, what makes people tick? And here you've got this, this young boy growing up outside Dublin. He was born in 1847, and he had some mysterious illness. And he recovered from that mysterious illness. I mean, he was practically an invalid for the first seven years of his life to go on to become a champion athlete. And then we'll talk much more about writing of Dracula. But r really, the first thing that got me, Adam, was how does a kid go from being an invalid for seven years, especially in a family of seven kids where you're probably forgotten at that stage, um, and then you go on to become a real stud, like the biggest athletic stud of the family. And of course, in my years, um, competing between um, 1977 and uh, 1992, um, there was steroids going around and human growth hormone and you know, immediately I thought of all that stuff but obviously that wasn't going on in those days so when J.D. Barker and I got together we sort of you know mixed up our magic potions in our head and said like what what if you know what what if Dracula was a, a warning to the world um, that vampires are real and Bram Stoker has proof to indicate that and so it was like okay well let's let's kind of play a little bit with his recovery pretend he had some sort of supernatural in intervention and that's the basis for the story dracul that has done incredibly well we we just found out about a week ago that we were the number one hardcover horror book sold in all of the uk in 2018 i think that's incredible i mean honestly i um when <clears throat> i started doing some research uh for my uh novelette i uh, i went back to dracula and um i you know, read through it, and I just wanted more of a traditional sense of, you know, vampires, and um, my friend, uh, Ryan Dunn, he um, he told me that you were going to be coming to town, and we were talking about it, 
And, um, you know, I just, I honestly, I was really uh, intrigued and I thought it'd be really neat to, um, I thought it'd be really neat to, to meet you, especially with your lineage. But then after meeting you and seeing how much research you've done and um, how much work has gone into this book, I mean, the book, even though it's, a, you know, considered like, you, you guys call it a prequel or precursor to Dracula, the book yeah. by itself could stand on its own. Um, I, I think that the way that the story's written, um, the, uh, I, I really feel like, you know, if, if Bram Stoker had written it himself, this is the story that he would have written for it. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of what we were hoping that we could, we could do a standalone because obviously Dracula's written in 1897. So many people know the story, but necessarily have not necessarily read the book. They know the story through adaptations movies, plays, um, comic books, all that. So we, we didn't want to pigeonhole ourselves to be only a prequel to the famous novel Dracula, as opposed to the, the origin story of Bram Stoker and what was going on in his life. So it's it's sort of like a biography on steroids, I guess you could say. I like um, the interesting takes. I, I really like the interesting take that you have on... Um, you know, facts of his life and then mixing it in with the, the fantasy and the horror. Um, the, there's a scene and I'm not trying to do any spoilers here, but there's a scene and I, the connection here with your presentation that you did kind of stood out. There's a scene where, uh, Bram's really ill. His fever is, um, it's pretty much unbreakable. And, uh, his uncle, the doctor comes in and starts bleeding him with leeches and these leeches are just engorged and um and then that's when it goes into another part but then you were talking about in your presentation that that was a common practice that they had that they uh, would try to cure people you know yeah. from different ailments because they thought that you know there was there's something wrong with the blood and that the leeches would you know remove the blood from them and you know so i, I like the um i like the crossover between you know fact and fiction i mean it's almost as you know it's, <sighs> Our, our modern day world, we have we have Google, we have you know research right at our fingertips. So you know, there's not a whole lot of mystery left, um, but there's so many things that are unknown. And well, the, what was unknown, and what was amazing to me, there's many things that were amazing, but the fact that there was a lot of medical people in the Stoker family, and and I'm, you know, as far as I go back, they weren't all doctors. You know, I, th I think. I know there was, you know, potentially some druids in the family way back when, so sort of we can call them medicine men, um, and they've moved into more formal doctors. But I went really far back in the family tree and found people of medicine in, in the family. And um, one of these doctors was quite a famous fever doctor who specialized in bloodletting. And because of, as you mentioned, Google, it's, it's, it's easy for me to find. And luckily, a lot of things have been digitized in Ireland and all over the world. I found an actual treatise by this um, Dr. Stoker on uh, what, the, what, what the symptoms were that you would do bloodletting for, what the actual procedure was like on children, and it was really horrifying. Um, so it, it was either leeching or, or cutting, and then later on they did this cupping technique. But I, I decided that, okay, here's a guy that has written the, one of the most famous books in the world, the horror, horror stories, about blood, you know, coming out of people, the blood being the life. And, and uh, you know, just maybe, 
he was bloodlet by one of his relatives. And so when I looked at the whole possibility of his illness, it was like this made a lot of sense. There's a very good chance that he was. And how would that traumatize somebody? Oh, when yeah, especially you were a little kid. Zero to seven years old, and along yeah. they come. You know, they're supposed to be your, your wonderful uncle and a, a couple of other women in white, and they bring these leeches or cut you open, and then you, you, you pass out from the loss of blood, and then they give you this, this wine, claret, <laughs> yeah. to, to cleanse your systems and how you're drunk. So this was a, would have been very traumatic for a little kid. I could imagine a child being lightheaded and woozy and then being given wine right after, you know, uh, especially probably not, you know, like in the story, I, I don't think he ate anything. Um, and, you know, so you, you just have this transition between, you know, being bloodlet yeah. to you, you, you're sick with fever, which is, you know, already hitting, you know, me messing with your mind <laughs> and then you're bloodlet. So your, your, your blood is, you know, trying to restore itself and, and then they give you wine and, you know, yeah, you, you, you just, you, these things are going to sort of cogitate around in your mind. And on top of that, we also found um, a few stories. One, we know absolutely for sure that Bram was told. So if you imagine he's in this state for seven years on and off being bloodlet and, and being made drunk and up in this room on the third floor by himself. And he's like living in his own mind. And, and his mother and his nanny come along and can tell him stories to obviously keep him occupied. And one of the stories, I'll, I'll keep this one short, but it's all about Charlotte Stoker, his mom's involvement during this horrible cholera epidemic in 1832 when it hit Sligo, Western Ireland. And people had no idea what was causing these diseases. And they were you know, being communicated from one person to another to another, obviously, by, by fluids. And everyone was dying. The doctors were dying. The, the medical people were, were all gone. The religious people who were doing the ceremonies, the funeral, were going. And so the next, the next group of people who were helping getting the bodies out of the homes, um, out of the hospitals, and into the hole in the ground, you know, were these street people. And they didn't know how to diagnose anybody if they were dead or not. And so they were misdiagnosing people, and people were being put into the graves prematurely. And there was, you know, actual recorded events where people were, you know, coming out of the grave uh, alive. And so I'm sure this weighed heavily on Bram when you combine all these things that maybe he gets this feeling that by mistake he will be buried prematurely. And what a horrifying thought that combined with the drunken, you know, drunkenness and, and trauma. And then years later, this whole thing kind of comes full circle when he starts researching real vampires of the 1700s of these similar type bodies coming out of the grave, seeking the life, continuing to live, and taking the blood from the living. It's it's all sort of, it, it makes total sense of, the, of how this could happen to somebody. I'm not, I'm not saying it was, you know, Brand, Brand knew all this 100% for sure, but it makes perfect fodder for a guy who's got a very vivid sense of imagination, a very dark sense of imagination to write this famous book years later. I, I agree with you. Um, and let's stop for a station break um, identification real quick. Um, thank you for listening in today. You're listening to Muses Memoirs and More. I'm your host, Adam Messer. I'm back on the air now after a couple months hiatus. Our guest today, our special guest is uh, Dacre Stoker, who is the co-author of Dracul with J.D. Barker. You're listening to us on WRUULP Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, Community Radio with Global Soul. Um, Dacre, can you give me one second? I think I might have figured out how. Let me try this. Yep. 
And can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Yeah. Okay, let me try that. All right, let's see if this comes in now. Nope. All right. I apologize, everybody. I was just trying to trying to get it to to go through the uh, the board here. So let's go back to what we were doing. All right. Um, so Dacre, you as an author, um, I love the idea that uh, you. I think you did uh, physical education. Is that right? As a teacher, I, I was I was a physical education teacher and a science teacher for about twenty two years, in both in Canada and and down in the U S. as well. So that is a, a great background for um, what you're talking about with Bram being sickly, and then later on, because I, I remember at the um, at the presentation, you're talking about how Bram had introduced a lot of different. Um, modern sciences that were kind of cutting edge at the time i think you were talking about like mesmerism um photography um there were some other things that you know he introduced into his into his book so you with your your background in research you know as a teacher and especially with uh science and technology and things like that um how did that help with your with your as as a writer and i and honestly i i i loved i want to talk more about like um bram stoker but really right now i'd like to talk about you as a writer and an author and um, how you became interested in in writing well um yeah I, I i focus so much on you know my writing is geared towards bram and so i sort of focus on what is it in him that i want to I want to write about. I want to. I want to explore, and, and so my my writing starts really with research into his life and what what were things that sort of as we say ticked ticked the boxes to him. And I found there's a lot of similarities, which is kind of strange. Um, my main job, obviously, for many years was a PE teacher and science teacher and, and a coach in athletics. And and Bram was a civil servant. Um, that what wasn't his first love but that's what he had to do in Dublin Castle on the side he was a writer and I think his passion was writing uh, his creative side coming out but he also really loved the theater and um, I wouldn't say my love is the theater as much as you know my, my love was athletics and I'm still actually heavily involved in, a, in another strange sport called uh, real tennis um, but that's that's a whole other story. But so both of us are sort of multi-dimensional people, and I've always liked, you know, the sciences and interested in earth science, and and I recognized that Bram was also looking at things in society that were important. And so for for your listeners, Adam, I think it's important that we, we lay the groundwork right now for what was going on at the end of the 1800s. That this was a time of great change. In, in England, Bram had moved from Dublin to London um, to work for Henry Irving, uh, which who was the most famous Shakespearean actor of the time in the Lyceum Theatre, and it's the first time that a an actor was you know a, a big enough persona and had enough uh, backers to buy a theatre. And Bram came in as his manager. Bram's background at Trinity University was mathematics. He was a very organized type person, having been a civil servant. And so the two of them created this incredible symbiotic relationship to make a theater successful. And up until this point, theaters were not all that successful. Um, the, the, going to the plays were, were sort of not much higher in society than sort of going to carnivals. But, but Bram Stoker and Irving wanted to change that. <coughs> Excuse me. And so 
they set off to do this. And what Brand did was made sure everything was done much more efficient. The, the set designings were more were more realistic. The costumes were realistic. The dialects that the actors used were more real, realistic. Uh, they were much more professional. And what so what Brand did was understand sort of what pushed the buttons of the viewers of London. So they so they would put on plays that would attract the rich and the famous, the creme de la creme. And so Irving and Stoker would adapt in a famous place around the world and put their twist on it. And this is kind of what Brand did in Dracula. So cutting to the chase here, and what you're talking about, science and so on, this is what, what caught my eye, having been a science teacher, is that Bram utilized the most cutting-edge sciences of the time. And rather than come out and say, oh, these are, these are important you know, in a newspaper article or in any other way, shape, or form that could get him in trouble if he was a little bit risque, he simply slid them into Dracula. And, and I'll list off a, a couple that he did. One was the whole science of physiognomy, also known as phrenology, which is the, the appearance of somebody's facial features would tell you about their character. He shared that same interest with uh, Walt Whitman and Winston Churchill for, for two people in particular, two of his friends. But that's how he described people in Dracula. <coughs> he also introduced... A recent science called mesmerism. Uh, a, a guy by the name of Franz Mesmer in the uh, late 1700s introduced it, but a guy called Jean Martin Charcot in the late 1800s was perfecting it. And so this is ESP. And so this is the whole concept of uh, Lucy and, or excuse me, Mina having the blood exchange from, from Dracula and being able to read his mind and vice versa. There was also the use of a of a wax cylinder in the phonograph that um, Dr. Seward was recording his notes. There was a typewriter being used by Mina, which was very modern. There was a, uh, a searchlight, which was very new at the time, the Edison searchlight in Whitby when the when the ship was wrecking. So there was all kinds of new things in, in, in addition to the, the Kodak that you mentioned. So Bram made a statement in Dracula, and that was, we've got all these new sciences at our disposal. Let's use them. We're going to need them to ward off this sort of evil supernatural power that's coming to invade us. But we've got to be careful how we use it because it's kind of like today. You know, we've got the atomic bomb. And if we're not careful with it, it goes in the wrong hands. It could be big trouble. So that's just kind of one, one intersect, Adam, between my personal interests, which is science, and, and, and Bram Stoker uh, at the same time. I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting how you have <clears throat> you have the connection um, with your your family history, and that you have a direct lineage to him, and that that area has become your passion for research, and you've become a historian on his life. Um, so I think it's it's pretty neat how you've transitioned with that and been able to carry that legacy on, as well as develop this new story that is, I don't want to say in the likeness of Bram Stoker, but you know, it, it, it would be as if, um, well, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to do spoilers, but I, I like how you've created Bram Stoker as a character in the novel that leads up to his life writing and acting and all that later on. So I, I'll, I'll give you one hint, just because I know I know where you're going to. We don't want to give much away. Right, right. My writing partner, J.D. Barker, is, is incredible thriller mystery writer. And I identified 
his talents when I read a book of his called Forsaken. And I'm not a strong enough writer to, to pull off his story, but I had this idea for a number of years and I needed somebody to help me. And J.D. approached things in a way that, that was really, really interesting. I obviously had read Dracula a couple times. But J.D. went, he likes to go for a jog every day with his dog. And so he would put Dracula on Audible on his phone, on his headphones, and go for jogs. And he did this for a couple of weeks over and over again. Because what he was trying to do was understand the cadence of Bram's writing, the rhythm of the writing. And I got to hand it to him. When I would give him my text, my additions to put in the book, it was J.D.'s voice, and his writing was the final voice throughout the whole book. He would be able to take that and transfer it into Bram's voice. Now, of course, the story is written in the epistolary style. So we, we had to figure out not just Bram's style, but Matilda, Bram's brother, Thornley, uh, Bram's sister, Thornley, who's Bram's brother, other characters like Bambury, who we knew were in Dracula. And so we had to create some we didn't know that much about. But the, the overriding voice of Dracul is because of J.D.'s incredible ability to, you know, get this, this writing style of a guy who wrote 122 years ago into his head and modernize it a little bit so that today's readers wouldn't be just blown away with old Victorian English. Yeah, I actually like, um, I'm not usually a big fan of uh, first-person uh, fiction. Um, like we were talking yesterday, I'm, I'm more of a non-fiction reader. And, uh, but the writing aspect of it, though, I enjoy writing fiction. And I am, I really, I mean, I'm not only about a hundred pages into the book. I started reading it on Friday and uh, I'm not really just trying to blow through it. I want to, you know, read it for pleasure. And um, I, I am enjoying the first person style of the book. And with Dracula, you know, the epistolary, I know it's, it's, and for folks out there, um, that just means uh, journalistic or like a journal type writing, you know, like what you would put in your ledger or journal or whatever. It was very Diaries, popular. Letters, yeah, uh, yeah. Introduction of newspapers. So it, what it does is it is different points of view. So the reader is challenged to figure out, you know, who you're reading right now. Yeah. And it's not all sort of linear in sequence as to the way the plot's unfolding. It sort of happens in a disjointed manner. And I, I, I'm really enjoying the way that the book is uh, put together. Um, we're going to take a, a break for a second here so I can do the station announcements. Um, um, Dacre, if you could hold on for just a second, okay? Yep. All right, thanks. Okay, everybody, uh, I appreciate you uh, bearing with us through our technical difficulties earlier. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Messer, and our special guest today is uh, Dacre Stoker. He has written, um, co-authored a book named Dracul. He also... Um, knows an awful lot about his great great grand uncle uh bram stoker who was the author of dracula so thank you for tuning in today um to muses memoirs and more here on wruu all right so the university of georgia Mar uh, marine education center and aquarium will offer an environmental education course for adults the series consists of three hands-on classes that focus on studying fish found in georgia coastal waters Topics include marine biology, morphology, taxonomy, and diversity. For more information, visit gacoast.uga.edu or call 
100 miles will present standing on the shoulders of giants, 65 years of ecological research at Sapelo Island, a lecture with Dr. Damon Gannon, Assistant Director of UGA Marine Institute on Thursday, March 7th at 7 p.m. at the 100 Miles office at 2424 Drayton Street. For more information, visit 100miles.org or call 912-349-2853. The Unitarian <coughs> Universalist Church of Savannah will present the next concert in its Sounds and Spirits concert series, Three Divas Redo, will feature sopranos Rebecca Flaherty and Julian Paskey Durant and contralto Jacqueline Hamilton on Sunday, March 10th at 4 p.m. at the Church on Troop Square in Savannah. For more information, visit uusavannah.org. The ships of the Sea Museum present Crossing Horizons, an exhibit, uh, <coughs> exhibit, exhibit, exhibit. <laughs> sorry everybody. Sometimes I get a little tongue-tied there. An exhibit exhibit uh, celebrating the 200th anniversary of a steamship Savannah's transatlantic voyage, featuring the work of artist Cynthia Knott on display from January 15th to March 16th. For more information, visit shipsofthesea.org. Okay, and make sure this computer is on all right we are back everybody uh you are listening to wruu lp savannah georgia 107.5 fm wruu.org we are savannah soundings community radio with global soul and if you're just now tuning in uh, we've got about another half an hour of our segment um, with our special guest his name is dacre stoker he is an author um teacher uh athlete there's a lot of things about him, and uh, he's also a descendant of uh, Bram Stoker, who uh, wrote Dracula. So, Dacre, I appreciate you being on the show with me today. And um, <clears throat> recently, you were here in Savannah for the Savannah Book Festival, right? That's right. It was a wonderful festival. I've, I've, I've heard about it, uh, but I've never made the trek down from Aiken, where I've been living for the past uh, 30 years, uh, but th- this time I did, I guess, because I've got you know some interesting stories to tell, and it was r- really fun to be able to tell it to, to you, Adam, and, and many other people that showed up as well. Yeah, you had a you had a great turnout, I feel, um, and then uh, afterwards with the uh, the book signing, I, it was a pretty uh, decent line there to, to visit with you. I agree. I mean, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that it took about 50 minutes to get through everybody that wanted to have a copy of Dracul, so that was that was awful nice. Yeah, uh, we we were some of the last ones in line, and I had a really good time uh, talking with folks um, while we were waiting. And I think one of the things that uh, I like the most about the book, the presentation of the book is really nice. The jacket is really nice. And then on the spine, I believe it was um, artwork from, is it Matilda's artwork? or? Oh, yeah, that was, that was really cool. Um, during, during my research... Uh, obviously, I found a lot of things about a lot of members of the family, but you know, because the internet uh, and people have digitized, luckily, the, there's an English illustrated magazine that uh, Bram wrote for. But we found that his sister Matilda, actually, who was a quite accomplished artist, she actually drew designs for, and one of them in particular caught my eye. And without giving away spoilers to to your listeners. It was a very intricate, it looks at first sort of like the Celtic knot, um, but what it really was, Adam, was was snakes all tangled up. Mm-hmm. 
And I approached the our publisher, uh, the, the imprint Putnam of uh, Penguin Random House. And I said, is there any way to incorporate this in, in our in our book? Either in the frontispiece or something. He said, oh, better yet, this would be make a very cool spine. And so what they've done is put this really cool Matilda Stoker design on the spine, which I don't know if this has ever been done before when you've got a a, a, uh, a real character who, uh, you know, I say real, a real person in a fictional story, some of her own artwork on the spine of the book. And in the book, she is also an artist herself. So there, there's a lot of cool connections uh, for, for the reader to kind of really soak up some of the authenticity of the reality of the story. And we kind of love the feeling at the end when people finish reading the story and then they read the author's note and they realize how much J.D. and I actually reveal are actually true. And and this design obviously is one of them and the mystery that goes with it. And I think that was one of the um, intriguing appeals for me as a a reader because, um, like I said, Brian uh, Dunn uh, told me that you were coming into town and I thought it would be really interesting to meet you as well because of um, what I'm writing with my uh, Savannah Vampire novel series. And the fact, it was just, you ever have one of those coincidences that just feel like, you know, everything's lining up the way they should, it should be. (laughs) And It's right, It, it, it was meant to be. Uh, and, and I meant to tell you, and I can't remember, I think I did, that, that uh, Bram Stoker actually went to Savannah um, in 1896 with Henry Irving. They, they performed at the Savannah Theater. Um, of course, they came to America eight times during, during the time Bram worked for Irving between um, 1897 and 1904. So this was a big deal for this, this um, London theatrical company to, to come over to America and travel all over the place and, and make a lot of money performing. And um, what was also interesting is that during the, the the seven-year period that from Bram's research notes, we know that Bram was writing Dracula between 1890 and 1897 when it was published. So he was actually in your city during the time when he was writing his novel. Now, you know a lot about the paranormal and ghosts, and Ryan certainly took me on a wonderful ghost tour of Savannah. Uh, I'm not sure, Adam, if you know of any vampires in your town, but maybe, who knows, maybe Bram got inspired by some stuff that you know that I don't know yet. So. Well, that's that was the whole thing about um, starting the uh, Savannah Vampire Novel Series for me was that there is not a lot of lore about vampires in Savannah. And I thought, well, you know, I would love to have I, honestly, I wanted it to be like a traditional, you know, feeling with Dracula. And that was, I, I didn't know until your presentation that Bram Stoker had actually been here in Savannah. And yep. then being able to meet you um, here in Savannah with the, the book festival and, you know, Dracula just having come out, you know, recently. And, you know, it, it was just a really interesting thing that kind of inspired me as an author as well. Um, I've been listening to uh, Stephen King's on writing and talking about audiobooks. I, I picked up the audiobook of Dracul, so I listened to it in the car and things like that. And one of the things that I really liked about that, um, with the research and you know the, the actual doing of the work, you know, so it was just one of those things, a very neat uh, experience in my life. I felt like um, you know being able to meet you, the connection with Bram Stoker, you know uh, Dracula, and then Dracul. 
Um, and then the series that I'm working on, I thought it was a really interesting way to kind of just put it out there and say, Hey, <laughs> you know, there's, there's somebody telling me that I'm going the right direction here. <laughs> so well, I, I think you are. And, and, and I admit, I have not read your book yet. No, no worries. If, if, you, if, if you imagine this and maybe you're touching on it and just tell me to put a lid on it if you are, but you know, Anne Rice brought the vampires to, to, to New Orleans. Um, all, obviously New Orleans already had some really interesting trade routes and, and as a port and lots of voodoo and all kinds of stuff going on. Well, Savannah is not a whole lot different. So maybe it's you, Adam, who's going to be the, the next uh, Anne Rice of, of bringing uh, vampires to Savannah um, because it's got you know a wonderful, eerie, his, historical nature to it. And when you consider this, that many different cultures around the world, and Bram did his research, um, we found records in the London Library, in Marsh's Library, the London Museum Library, um, Trinity College, that Bram was aware of all the cultures, I wouldn't say all the cultures, that's, that's not true, of at least 13 different cultures that had vampires in their history that, that all predate um, you know, settling in the United States. But all these people would leave, and, and their ancestors would leave, and they would, they would move, and they'd come to the New World. And we know that in the late 1800s, a lot of people from Eastern Europe ended up in New England in, yeah. the, in the timber business and in the mining business, and they brought all their superstitions with them. So what's to say that all the people that came into Savannah for the rice trade and, and, and slavery and all these other, other things from different parts of the world, um, from France, that they didn't bring their superstitions? So you may be uncovering some really cool an interesting uh, history that could develop a really cool following of, of vampires that may be based on re the real superstitions. Yeah, that's um, that's that's the goal, and I think this is this is one of the things I want to put out there to the listeners uh, because the show is about helping um, people, uh, talking to them about skill sets and stuff like that, and you know, authors, artists, and entertainers, right? So, this is one of the things for me, everybody, that was a really cool crossroads where. I had a chance to meet. I'd, I'd never met you before. Um, Ryan Dunn was telling me that you were coming into town. That he talked to you a little bit about, you know, his uh, his tour and the afterlife uh, tourism, <clears throat> the afterlife tours that he has, him and his wife Kim, and um, and I thought it'd be a really interesting opportunity to be able to go and and meet you. And then I found out that you were having a presentation, and uh, believe it or not. I was late trying to get there. I, I had been looking for a parking spot for about 40 minutes. And, uh, <laughs> Which is typical in Savannah, yes? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, Are you on until 5? Yeah, I'm on until 5. Okay, I didn't know that. Thank that's okay. We go on until 5. Yeah, no problem. Right. No problem. Hey, that's uh, that's our next uh, our next host coming in, just checking in with us. So what I was saying, everybody, was uh, it was, it was a, a weird um, coincidence because that same day, you had a fire alarm go off, right? So it pushed your presentation yeah. back. And I got there like right before the guy that introduced you went on. Literally sat down right next to Ryan right before that guy started uh, talking. And uh, I thought, you know, wow, this is, uh, you know, I believe in God. And, and I thought this was such a neat little coincidence that, uh, you know, all the things lined up, you know. And then uh, I haven't been on the radio show in a while either. And uh, I just reached out to Dr. Dave Lake and I said, hey, I'd like to you know, start doing my radio show again. What's available? And 
you know, I asked you if you were interested and you were available and here we are. So, you know, all these things line up, but, um, I just thought it was kind of cool. And I, I, I'm one of those uh, authors as well, because my background's in business and, and leadership. And I, I like to incorporate, um, factoids. I don't necessarily want it to be, you know, to sound like it's a, you know, written historical fiction, but I do like to kind of interweave different, um, I don't know, cultural beliefs or, um, you know, maybe antiquarium, um, historical sites or things like that too. So I, that's one of the aspects that I like about Dracul that uh, listening to your presentation and seeing your presentation and then kind of seeing the different truths that were true parts of the story being interwoven with the fictional part of the story. So, yeah, that, you know, that, just, just for your listeners, um, I do I do a couple of different presentations, which having been a teacher, when I, when I wrote my first book, Dracula of the Undead, the, the, the normal thing to do would be go to some bookstore, go to some place where people are going to listen to you and they say, read from the book. Right. Do a reading. And to me, it's like, that's the most boring thing in the world. Right. <laughs> and, and I have to admit, when I was in high school, you know, when, when a teacher would read to me, the first thing to do would put us to sleep. So I wanted to do something different. I was much more audiovisual. And when I was teaching science, obviously in the sports world, it was very visual, you know, the, the, the dry erase ball, all this stuff, diagramming things. But it was also something that would kind of bring the story to life. So right off the bat, I said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out PowerPoint. And then I got an Apple, did Keynote and all the cool transitions. And I got access to Bram's handwritten notes and all cool other images that would inspire us. So that's that's to me is is the essence of telling the story of of how you you write a book and what goes into it. Now, obviously, there's a ton of back and forth between your 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 co-author and and the editors and the fact checkers and the researchers. And it's, it's a it's a whole machine. But when I when I love to explain the story, so that's what that's what uh, Adams is explaining to you is to, to doing these presentations. I absolutely love, and I've traveled all over the world. I've gone to some incredible places to. I've been in Mensa conferences to Guantanamo Bay to the troops down there. I've, I'm going to Finland just next week to go to a museum that's doing a vampire exhibit. I've been to Granada, Spain. But but the bottom line is there's that there's a it's really interesting to me to be able to bring to people all these cool backstories. Yeah. And and I and I urge you, Ryan and, and Adam, excuse me, in, in your writing. Um, Ryan's in, a writer in, as well. In, just in a way a, just that Ryan too. did to me when we <laughs> yeah. did our our tour is Ryan brought out these really cool backstories. We'd walk into this cool bar, go upstairs and he'd tell me all the things that were, were going on. And it's, yeah. it's really quite similar to it gets under your skin a little bit. It's, it's not just one dimensional. Yeah. Words yeah. Paper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, real quick, let me do a station identification. Um, thanks yep. for tuning in everybody. You're listening to us today on, uh, Muses, Memoirs and More W R U U L P Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, Community Radio with Global Soul. I'm your host, Adam Messer, and our special guest today is Dacre Stoker, who is the co-author of Dracul with uh, J.D. Barker, and he was recently here in Savannah. We were talking about that trip a little bit. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about writing and research, and then just just now you were talking about uh, how the backstory can help kind of get under your skin or kind of get into your blood. I think <laughs> not to use a uh, <laughs> yeah. not to use a little uh, play on words for vampirism, but um, I think that's one of the interesting parts because really, you know, stories 
you know, everything that we do is, is some form of a story. We tell it in some form of a story. We tell it to ourselves in some form of a story. You know, we relive it in some form of story. And um, so I think it's an interesting way to put it. Storytelling has been around for a long time, you know, obviously before people could write. And the good storytellers in the towns, you know, would be of higher social value. Uh, this this is actually how the whole idea of the superstition of the vampire kind of really took off in, in the medieval days in the 1700s when the um, plague was running through Europe and people wouldn't understand exactly what was going on with the decomposition of bodies. They wouldn't understand uh, when these bodies were buried. They wouldn't understand how diseases were communicated from one person to another. And so they would make up make up stories to explain what they didn't understand. And the easiest thing to do was when a family would uh, be stricken with some disease and the first one would be, obviously, let's say the mother or the father would be the first to die and they bury the poor soul. And then one or two other members of the family would have, get the illness. Well, the stories would go around that the family's not mourning properly for the deceased mother <coughs> or there was something wrong with what she did in her life. And so this mother is coming back and taking the life out of the living. They wouldn't understand that it was just the disease that was passed on. Right. So they'd go to, they'd go to the grave and they'd open up the grave and they'd see this rather bloated, partially decomposed body that made no sense to them. And strangely enough, it would be bloated with, with sort of gases. It would look like it was had a big meal of something because its stomach was distended. And around the shroud, around the face, there'd be these sort of red droplets, which would obviously be, which is kind of disgusting, but some of the biological decomposition process and the juices would come out. And it would look like it had blood around its mouth. And right. so they would draw a logical conclusion. This thing was coming out of the ground and taking the life out of the living members of the family, making them ill. So they would stake this thing in the heart to keep it in the ground. And occasionally, apparently stories tell us, that those gases would then go through the vocal cords and make this audible gasp, <coughs> which would then make them believe they were right, that this creature was actually, you know, dead Alive. or undead. Yeah, undead. <laughs> yeah. and, and so these, you know, just imagine, uh, you know, school kids in the back of a bus embellishing the story, embellishing the story. Oh, yeah, that happened to my grandfather. Oh, yeah, I saw it myself. That same thing happens in these villages. And so this, this is how... As you and I were just saying, stories take on a life of their own and they get better and better as they're embellished. And of course, if somebody has a little bit of plum brandy, as they would in parts of Transylvania, the stories really get good. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Uh, we have about uh, 10 minutes left, uh, Dager. Um, I know that you uh, were saying that you're going on tour and that you've been you've, you've been out there uh, talking about the book. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was the journal. And if, if I remember correctly, you actually discovered the journal. Yeah, that was, that was a really kind of bizarre because of all the, let's call them seminal documents around the world. I really don't deserve any credit for discovering any other people had found them. There's the notes in the Rosemont museum. And I urge your listeners to make that pilgrimage there sometime. It's in Philadelphia, or you can actually buy the facsimile edition of them. <coughs> the, tr the typescript of Dracula, you, you, you can't go and see because it's quite protected by, the, by Paul Allen's estate. But occasionally they allow people who are doing serious research to look at it. Um, and, and then there is this lost journal that one of Bram's 
uh, great-grandsons actually had in a box in his attic in the Isle of Wight. And when I when I saw it, uh, when I was over there doing research for Drac of the Undead, he said, yeah, we've got this, this journal of Bram's, uh, but I've never been able to read it. The handwriting is so terrible. I, I about jumped out of my skin. Uh, Adam, oh, I, I had this moment like, this is like the holy grail of Bram. Very, very little has ever been found up to that point about Bram Stoker writing anything himself about himself. Okay. Many things have been written about Bram, four or five biographies, but no autobiography, and very few statements that he's ever made other than the Jane Stoddard interview that Bram gave about Dracula. So this was unbelievable. 179 pages of Bram's own thoughts. And it wasn't a diary like got to go to the grocery store today or dentist appointment. It was just random thoughts and observations that he wrote over an 11-year period while he was living in Dublin, while he was a, a university student, while he was working as a civil servant, while he was a you know an athlete. So he recovered from his his uh, in, you know whatever his mysterious ailment was. He was the, he was the athlete. He was he was the man about town, and he was observing things. Uh, and some of these things came out in other books. Some of them were very grotesque and macabre. Some of them were very humorous. It was his own uh, way to practice writing and to record things that he used later in his life. I think um, that was really interesting. I was uh, checking out your Amazon page. And is that um, facsimile copy available? Or like, did you translate it? Because I, I saw something that said the you know, the diary or the, um, the journal of, of Bram Stoker. So I'm just trying to clarify. Um, well, there's, there's, there's two things. There's the, there's the notes for Dracula, okay. which, which are the, his, his 125 pages of Dracula notes. But, but, and, and that is available. I think you can get the soft cover on, on Amazon, but I know you, I've seen copies on eBay and actually I just wrote an introduction for the authors, Miller and Basang, to actually do a third edition of it. So there's another one coming soon. Okay. Um, but the Bram Stoker's Lost Journal, um, I believe there's some copies still available on Amazon. I know that the, the publisher that I had published this work, I had to get it done in England because of the uh, copyright laws, protect works by posthumous writers. <coughs> Bram died, obviously, in 1912. And it protects his work for 25 years if it's published in, in um, the Great Britain. And unfortunately, the division of that imprint went out went out of business. So I'm working now to find a new home. I've got the rights back to republish that, oh, awesome. which should be done in, in a year or so. Um, but you might be able to get copies of it, uh, used copies or on eBay. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, because I was, I was checking it out. And um, you have a... Uh... You have uh, Dracula, the Undead, that you that you co-authored as well, right? That's right. That was the book I wrote with Ian Holt. That's a continuation of Dracula in 2009. Uh, the story continues 25 years after Dracula ended, so it takes place in the year 1912. It's kind of a you know, it's a fun story. It got my feet, you know, into the whole Dracula thing. Um, got, got you know, it's 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 actually international bestseller. Um, got some pretty tough reviews <coughs> from some people because they didn't like you know that we did some changes to some of the characters and in reality we struggled with what kind of a vampire novel to write because the 1992 Coppola movie was a big favorite of, of Ian's and, and I liked it too 
And so we were kind of swayed a little bit to sort of continue that story as much as we were to blend that with a continuation of Bram's book that came out in 1897. I think uh, the entire, not necessarily process, but the entire uh, timeline that you've even, you've been working on this for well over 15 years, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I think that is just incredible. And it's just, you know, just out there, everybody listening. Um, it's just one of those things I wanted to share with you that, um, you have to put the work in. We talked about this before, but you have to put the work in. And uh, a lot of overnight sensations, uh, you know, they've been spending uh, 10, 15 plus years uh, working on on their on their uh, their project. Um, not necessarily that you've you know spent 15 years working on Dracul, but the 15 years of, of research and work that you've done certainly helped with the you know the process of putting together Dracul. Well, well, it does, and, and sometimes. And Adam, it involves a fair amount of traveling because even though there are things you can find in your own desk like I do in Aiken, South Carolina, but I travel to Ireland quite frequently to go to libraries that don't have things that are digitized. Um, go to London. Actually, an interesting thing for your viewers, I know we're getting close on time, uh, but your listeners may enjoy the fact that just two months ago in the London Library, which is a private library where Bram did his research, <clears throat> They found 28 of the books that he had um, checked out. Oh wow! Were still in circulation on their <laughs> on their shelves. So you could actually touch a book that he was holding in his hands. <laughs> and furthermore, yes. And furthermore, Bram marked some of them up himself. Oh wow! With, with little underlining and check marks in pencil. Three more books his son donated to the library. Um, so they, they were also books that Brad listed in his notes for research. And so they could cross-reference all the little check marks that Bram wrote in his own books, as well as the ones of theirs that he, that he researched. That is, uh, that's really, that is really neat. I appreciate that. Um, Dacre, I appreciate you being on the show today. Uh, where can the listeners find your information? They, they can go to uh, com to my website or www.bramstokerstate.com and find out a lot about us or go onto Facebook and look for me because I post a lot of things that I do and love to hear from the listeners and, and my readers. And that's uh, D-A-C-R-E-S-T-O-K-E-R.com, correct? That's correct. Okay, awesome. Well, I appreciate you being on uh, today. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'm looking forward to finishing the uh, the novel, and then also, uh, you know, to, to I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up the other um, copies of your other books, and just you know, kind of put it all together. But uh, it's been a it's been a great resource for me as well with my writing, and uh, just to talk to another um, you know author who's been spending a lot of time. Uh, I certainly haven't spent that much time, but it, it's really cool to you know to have a chance to to meet you and then uh, be able to talk with you today. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, and I really appreciate you, uh, you know, hunting me down at the book festival and pursuing because uh, that's the way we spread the word. And uh, from one author to another, keep it up, man. The blood is the life. Yeah, definitely. All right, thanks, Dacre. And uh, everybody uh, listening in, thank you so much for listening in. Uh, we're uh, about to go on to our next segment, and I'm going to put some, uh, I'm going to put some smooth jazz on for you until the uh, four o'clock hour. So thanks a lot. This is WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, community 